Today's text is going to be out of Acts chapter 17. And if you want to start turning there, you can. In fact, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one, okay? So uh, we do this every week, so don't feel funny about this, but we pass out these Bibles. If you don't own one, just raise your hand. Seriously, we'd love for you to follow along. We do it every week. Anybody? Take a Bible. If you don't own one, you do now. It's our free gift to you over on this side. Great. And, uh, and follow along with this. This way you know what we say and what we put on the screen is actually in there, right? That we're not just throwing up words that we want you to think are in the Bible, uh, but that they're actually in there, and then you can follow along when you go home as well, okay? Um, this text is honestly a very important text for me. There's a couple of verses in this chapter uh, that have extremely shaped uh, my life, have shaped my life uh, specifically as a Christian. And so I want to pray, uh, if I might, one more time over the text and, and over the Holy Spirit to come and to illuminate and to teach us and to shape us by his power. So you guys bow your heads with me. Jesus, thank you. Father, thank you. And Spirit, thank you that you are here with us, that we have the opportunity to open up your word this morning, God, that we can do so freely, God, that we can come together, that we can study and we can research and we can interpret and we can teach and we can learn. But God, all of those things don't mean anything unless you transform. And so, Holy Spirit, would you just do some amazing work today and make us more like Jesus. That if we're here and we know you and we love you, God, that we would look more like you when we leave this place than when we arrived. For those who are here who are kind of checking out God or or checking out the the Jesus or the Christianity thing, but we pray, God, that you would reveal yourself in power, that you would save, and that, God, that you would allow and draw people continually to yourself. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, In the amazing film, uh, Schindler's List, if you haven't uh, seen the film, I I highly, highly encourage you to watch it. It is a very heavy film, but one of the greatest films, I think, in history. Uh, The final scene uh, of the film, and I am going to give it away a little bit, but the final scene, the protagonist, Oscar Schindler, has this moment where he, surrounded by the hundreds and thousands of, of Jews that he has saved in his lifetime. Uh, during, if you're, sorry, if you're not familiar, this is during uh, the Second World War and Nazi, uh, Nazi occupation. And so this man was, was literally using his wealth and his power uh, for the sake of, of saving Jews who were facing impending death. And, and the final scene is he's standing there and, and he's surrounded by all of these Jews that have been saved through his work. And, uh, and, and they come to him and they present him with this, this award, if you will, this, this thank you gift. And, and he, he receives the gift and then he, he begins to break down in tears. And there's this one line from the film that since the day that I saw it, I cannot get out of my head, that literally to this day continues to be this resounding line that comes up all the time in my life. And, and the line that he says is, I could have gotten more, right? I could have saved more. And he just keeps saying that over as tears pour through uh, from his eyes, as his body begins to keel over, I could have saved more. And this surrounded by all of these that he has saved. And they, they go and say, no, 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 like, look at what you've done. The, there literally are generations that will continue because of what you've done. And he continues, no, no, he looks upon all of these things in his life, and he points to his car that's right there, this really fancy car. He says, no, I could have sold this car. This would have been at least 10 more. Like, I could have saved 10 more if, if I just sold the car, right? And, and he pours this emotion out for the sake of the other. 
And there's a couple things from this scene as, as I was prepping this text over the last few weeks that this scene kept kind of coming to mind for a couple reasons. One, there's just this reality and this desire that the church throughout the book of Acts has consistently said we will lay it down for the sake of the other. Right, that those would hear the gospel and be saved. Even upon impending death, no, no, we lay down our desire, our comfort for the sake of the other. But then also that this line that has just resonated with me since I first saw the film reminded me of the verse that comes up here in 17.6. And I'll just say it to you now. And it says this, that there, there are these men, right? It says, these men who are turning the world upside down right? There's these men that are now in our city that are taking the culture and the world and the way it functions, and they are flipping it on its head and teaching us an entirely new way to live. And ever since I first read this passage, that line has been a resounding one for my life. What does it look like for me individually, and what does it look like for our church and for the church, not just here at Redemption, not just in Flagstaff, but across the world, to be such a faithful presence that the world would literally be turned on its head because it is so subversive in all the right ways. So as we navigate through this, these are some of the themes that run through my mind and hopefully through our hearts as we jump into it. Now, uh, like I just said about 12 days ago, no, two weeks, two weeks today actually, so it was two Sundays ago, we had our second kid, James, and he is, again, amazing and we love him, but it made me kind of think through life now with two kids and the transition from zero kids to one kid, right, and start thinking, man, life has changed significantly since the arrival over three years, or just about three years ago with our first kid, Finley. You see, when he, when he, before he came on the scene, Verity and I, uh, that's my wife, we, we could go out to eat whenever we wanted, right? We could go to bed whenever we wanted. We could eat whatever we wanted. We could choose to do, be, and spend time wherever and doing whatever we so pleased. And then all of a sudden, this little seven-pound, eight-ounce bundle of crying joy comes into our life, and our entire world is flipped upside down. We're now all of this stuff, right, this, this self-freedom, all the things that we protected and coveted about our marriage and about our individualism and anything that we could just choose to do at any given moment in our life was now taken away in a moment. Everything was flipped on its head. Now, here's the reality, if, 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 especially if any of you have kids, right? You know that kids are truly a gift. They bring joy. They bring happiness. They bring love. They point you to God. They teach you all these things. But if we're honest, sometimes it's I would contend the hard, the difficult, the terrible moments in the relationship between parent and child are only when that child's uh, coming into the, 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 the impending reality of, of the presence of the kid now in the life confronts the idols of yourself. That, that honestly, they, they come and they bring nothing but joy and goodness, but when they confront your idol, man, then it's difficult. When your idol has been comfort, right, and man, I can do and make decisions for my own life, and then now you have to care more about this kid not dying, right? Like being fed and living a life and growing up hopefully to be a man or woman of God that, that treats people well. All of a sudden, 
your idols get pressed upon, and that is the difficulty. That's when we push back. That's when we rebel. That's when we say, I don't know, you're the problem. What we see today in the presentation of the gospel continually through the book of Acts, right? This, this true story, this true narrative of the world that Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, God in the flesh, who lived the life that we could never live, perfect, blameless, righteous, right? That he goes to the cross, dies the death that we all deserve to die, and then raises on the third day, right? Defeats Satan's sin and death to give us new life and restoration for the whole world for eternity. Now, this, this good news, this gospel story, as it goes out through the book of Acts, as we see it press into multiple cities today, we're going to see this gospel, this really good thing, the good news, confront multiple idols, and then we get to see how difficult it is when that happens. Not, not just for, you know, these people in the, in the word, uh, but for us as well. And so here's my goal. The goal is not that we're going to run through, I think there's like 10 idols we'll talk about today. My goal is not that you sit there and you say, okay, well, I struggle with, you know, one, four, and nine. Like, those are my three, right? No, I, I want to paint this comprehensive picture that, that God and, and Jesus as ultimate idol is far greater and o- the only thing worthy of a worship than all the other stuff, Right? So whatever you bring to the table, because I'm certain the 10 that we'll talk about today don't even touch the amount that we got. Because man, can we find stuff to idolize, okay? And so I'm going to say, no, no, all of it is nothing compared to Jesus. And that, that's what we move towards this morning as a church. And so let's look at Acts 17, verse 1. Here we go. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them who were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Okay, so this first stop on on the second missionary journey of Paul and Silas as they go out to continue to preach the gospel to the world, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, they stop in this little city called Berea. And they begin to preach there, okay? And begin to share the gospel there. And in the midst of it, they begin to reason through the scriptures, right? So what they do is they go to the synagogue and they meet with the Jews, and the Jews would have known the Torah, which is the Old Testament scriptures, right? They would have known everything that was in there. So what he does is he goes, he opens like, all right, let's look at this and let's pour through it. Let me reason with you in the word of God how it makes perfect sense that this Messiah named Jesus had to come and he had to suffer. Now, for the average Jew in that day, uh, there, there was often this significant pushback to Jesus because there was a significant pushback that the Messiah would suffer. See, now, now understand this. Like, the Jews have been waiting for this guy for thousands of years to show up. Like, the Messiah was like, when's he coming, when's he coming, when's he coming? And then when he comes on the scene, the expectation was this powerful king that would come and overthrow the Roman government. He would not suffer. He is God in the flesh. He's the Messiah. He's the king. He comes in power, not in sacrifice. And so they begin to reject this idea that the Messiah would ever have to suffer. I think so for, I think for one primary reason. I think because those that we wish to idolize, we wish to emulate. And why would you ever want to emulate someone who suffers? 
Like, if, if, if you're like, okay, this Messiah is the Lord of our lives. Like, we're supposed to follow him, obey him, let him dis, uh, you know, decide and move through our lives. If that's true, then man, let, let him not be this suffering servant who lays down his life for the sake of his enemy. No, let him be the conquering king that I can follow into the battlefield and win every victory of my life. But that's not who he was. And it astonishes, astonishes me, honestly. Because if you do read through the Old Testament and you pour through Old Testament prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, I mean, you just continuously see that the Messiah that would come would have to suffer. The entire prophetic word from Isaiah 53 is all about the suffering servant that would go and be beaten and scourged and give his life for the redemption of many. And, and yet they missed it. And so Paul now in Berea sits down with him and says, let's, let's revisit the scriptures and let's look through this. And I think what he does in there is confronts the idols of safety and security. Because they wanted their Messiah to be someone that would just be able to fit into their little idols of, well, I've got my life kind of dialed in. I don't have to lay down. I don't have to suffer. I don't have to sacrifice. I can just kind of have the Messiah and my perfect cookie cutter little experience and there should be no impending negativity to me. And so this, this claim of him being the suffering servant pushes against the idols of safety and security then and I think safety and security for us today. Let's continue. Verse 5. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed the mob and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus and the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Here's that quote. So, so again, this, this is not helpful for the Jews. They begin to get frustrated. How dare you push against my reality? How dare you call me towards something that I'm not comfortable with? And so they rebel and they try and have these guys arrested. They go to the authorities these guys are turning the world upside down. They're taking our culture. They're taking the way we do things and saying there's this whole other way. And guess what? Here's the worst part. They're saying that, you know, Caesar, the king, the one that we have venerated, he's God of the Roman Empire. Yeah, they're saying there's a, there's a God and there's a king that's even bigger than him. This was, this was like treasonous in this time to say such things, such blasphemy against Caesar. And yet this is the claim of not just Paul and Silas there in Berea, it's the claim of Scripture that there is no other king in this world that supersedes Jesus. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Okay. So, so this, this, this is the confrontation of the idol. So it, it's not just safety and security. Now we see this, this confrontation of the idol of power. We're now, we're now see, see, the kingdom of God subverts the power structures of this world and says, listen, you think it's about you having this, this kind of presupposed false power that you wield and lord over people. I tell you, that is not it. In fact, power in the kingdom of God starts from the bottom and the vision of a suffering servant. And so, so again, turning the world upside down, confronting not just the idols of power for them, but I think also for us unto this day. Turning the world upside down. Right? Some of the best things in life are upside down. Possums, 
pineapple cake. <laughs> Ever had one of those? Amazing. <laughs> Turning the world on its head. Saying this is there's just something different here, guys. And I love, I love the vision of the church doing this and upsetting then this reality for the people that are there. That when they look and when they watch, they say, you know what? There's just something different, right, about the way that you guys do life, that you've kind of set aside these, these idols of yours to care more about the other. So, so when I got saved, I got saved in, in 2000 and, oh, geez, 2002. Yeah, 2002. And uh, all throughout high school, I was, I was just not a believer, right? And so just doing non-believerish things, okay? And so all of my friends were also in that same group. And so when I become a Christian, they all just disappeared. Like, this was not me saying, hey, I, I can't talk to you anymore. This was them saying, no, we can't talk to you anymore. You're weird. You keep talking about Jesus, right? And so I had all these friends that all of a sudden kind of just ditched out on me for a while. And then one night, about honestly like a year later, I'm in college, I come home for the summer break, and I get a call randomly on the phone. It says, hey, Vince, and it's just loud in the background. All my friends were at a party. They're, they're screaming and said, man, you won't believe what just happened to Ryan. I said, oh, God, like, what happened to Ryan? He was just walking, and he just fell face first in the tile and busted out his front teeth. And, I, and they're laughing about this. And I said, is he okay? They're like, I don't know, he's bleeding, but we put him in the bathroom, so he's probably fine. I said, yeah, that makes sense, guys, you know. And so I said, all right, I'll be over there in a minute. So I drive over there, and it was about an hour away to where this party was. It was like 2 in the morning, woke me up. And I drive over there, and I get into the bathroom, and sure enough, there's Ryan just leaning up against the wall, this bloody mouth, still sobering up, not really sure what's going on. And I just sat in there with him, talking to him until he came kind of down from his drunken stupor for the next, like, three hours. Cleaned him up. Brought him to the hospital. We paid for his dentist bills, kind of the whole deal. I helped him kind of hide it from his parents, which, again, I was an early new believer, okay? <laughs> so don't judge me, okay? Um, and so, like, but, so we do this, right? And, and, and listen, here, here's the reality. Like, um, in that moment, it was not a thought. This is a guy I love, and so certainly I'll lay down my desire to sleep right now. I'll lay down my desire to save gas money and not have to care about the people that ostracized me, the people that said I wasn't good enough for them anymore, the people that said, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and said, no, I love this guy, and so I go, and I show up, and I do this, and literally that changed absolutely everything with me and that group again, to the point where Ryan then gave his life to Christ, and then multiple of my old friends gave their lives to Christ through this period of being faithful in laying down the things of me, and, and here, God, God that's, I even want to tell you this story, it sounds as if I'm like, I, I hate that that sounds like I did something cool, because I didn't, right? Like I did nothing cool there. It was just, hey, I got a buddy whose mouth is bleeding and my friends are idiots, so I better actually go up and do something about this, okay? Not special, but faithful. We, 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 we lay down the idols of the day, we lay down our own stuff, because we want to love other people. And we want to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. Amen? That, that, that is the move of the entire book of Acts. It's the theme of this morning. So let's continue to, to move on into verse uh, 22. Um, sorry, no. Here's what we're doing. Uh, verses 10 to 19. I'm just going to give you a paraphrase through, okay? Uh, just for time's sake. So he, he makes a few more stops. Uh, and, and again, this is why I want you guys to follow along, you know? And you can even look on the screen as, as, as we go through them. But um, 
He goes to make some, uh, a couple more stops, and so here's what he does. He talks to some noble Jews in Berea, um, and he was in Thessalonica in that first passage. I know I kept saying Berea, but I meant Thessalonica, and you guys all knew that. Okay, So now he's in Berea in his second stop, and he's preaching to noble Jews, and again, he opens up the scriptures and reasons with them and says, hey guys, listen, it's all here. Right? And then they say, okay, open up the scriptures, teach us more. And I just love the craving of the heart of the Berean church to say, teach us more. Because I don't think we often get that in the church today. Or even in the world that says, like, you know what, I'm not really sure about that answer. Why don't we open up the Bible and find it together? Right? Oftentimes it's, well, no, I, you know, I read this blog the other day that somebody posted on Facebook, and that's authority. And so I'm going to believe that over actually doing any research myself. I cannot tell you how often I meet with people in our city, and the first thing they say to me is, yeah, well, the Bible says this. And then they say something so incredibly bogus and not in there, it drives me crazy. They'll say, oh, well, you know, the Bible is a book of hate. I'm like, what? what are you, have you ever, I go, have you ever read it? Well, yeah, no, I read a couple chapters. I said, which one? It's in Judges. I'm like, well, dang, man, like, okay, you're right, you know. But even there, you're wrong, you know. And I said, well, listen, listen, no, you can't. it's not just this, it's not one chapter. You it's just the narrative and the true story of the world. So I said, why don't, we, why don't we start over? Why don't we start in Genesis? And why don't we go all the way to Revelation? And let's talk about this grand arc narrative about a God who, although has constantly been said, no thank you, has constantly came after a people, a rebellious people, and said, I love you, believe, believe, believe. Okay? And then showed himself in power. It's such a beautiful narrative. And so, honestly, I love the Brian Church. That's just a mini little nugget for you out of what happens there. Then he moves on to Athens, and he preaches there to devout Jews, and then he begins to preach to some of the other cultures in Athens, and Athens was a kind of a cultural hub, right? So you had all these people from different places gathering together. And he begins to dialogue with these two philosophers, these, these Stoic philosophers and these Epicurean philosophers. Now, uh, I'm sure most of you in your antiquities classes remember a ton about what these guys are about, but I'll refresh your memory anyway, okay? So the Epicureans were, were what I like to call like the YOLOs, right? They're the, you're only, you only live oncers, right? They were the guys that said, you know what, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, they're the guys that said, let us indulge in every possible desire because once this thing is done, it's done. So let's live it up while we are here. And then you had the Stoic philosophers, and, and they were, that's where you get the word Stoic. I mean, they, you just picture they were probably just sitting there or standing there like this. Very duty-driven. They, they abstained and pushed away and pushed down human desire. Right? So they're the exact opposite of the Epicureans, and they would debate and debate and debate, and then Paul inserts himself into the discussion and points to a better way than they both have. I think in this then also confronting the idol of ideology, right? that there's a certain perfect way and ideology that you or I will form outside of God that will figure this world out. It happened in the 18th century, and it has infected, honestly, our world since then. And I'm pro-enlightenment. I'm pro-science. I think it's great. They go hand-in-hand, hand, the whole deal. But let's be honest, the enlightenment has not figured the world out. Humanism hasn't answered the question, right? We've been doing this now for 300-plus years. It hasn't gotten any better. There's an internal struggle and problem with our hearts that that stuff just can't really answer. And no ideology that you will land upon will be sufficient outside of Jesus. Okay. And then he continues on. Now, in the midst of this, uh, you know, spending time with these two guys, they invite him to this place called the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was, was like 
ancient TED Talks, okay? Like they would gather in this place called Mars Hill and they would bring the best speakers, the best philosophers, the world-renowned guys would all go sit and they would present their ideals, their ideas, their values, their thoughts and the way the world worked and they would gather together, debate and go back and forth and this is just what they did, okay? And so he gets an invite to go talk to these guys. Now, what an incredible opportunity. And I'm thinking, it's like, man, it's, it's amazing that God would so line this up that he's going to be speaking to the greatest philosophers and thinkers of our day. And it made me think of this one time, okay, that I was sitting in, uh, uh, in, when I was living in Thailand, and one of the families that we partnered with, uh, they, uh, she was like world-renowned harpist, like top five harpists in the entire world. So good that King Bumibol, who is the king of Tha- well, former king of Thailand, he passed away last year, um, would invite her to come and play for him, like kind of like bring her in, you know, and she would come in and just do the harp at, at like big, at big receptions, but also just like, hey, you know, like I want to hear some harp right now. So she would go to the palace, play harp for the king, kind of, I mean, like amazing. And so one time she says, would you ever want to come with? And I said, Yes. She says, well, you'll, you'll have to, like, you know, do all these things because the king is, was revered there. I mean, to the point where when you would go to the movie theater, before the start of every movie in Thailand, there is a three- to four-minute video about the king that everyone in the theater has to stand up and watch. And you cannot say a word. If you say a word, you're kicked out, okay? You watch this video. Video ends. Everyone sits back down. You enjoy the film, okay? And so this king was revered, so I said, man, this is an opportunity. I'm going to save the king of Thailand, like this, this is what's running through my mind. Like, I'm going to get him, okay? Because if we get him, we're going to start changing that three to four minute video of me presenting the gospel to Thailand, okay? And everyone's going to get saved. And like, these are the thoughts of grandeur in my mind, you know? Like, I'm 23 years old and thinking naive that I'm going to change the world or whatever. And, uh, and so, sure enough, we go and uh, I have countless opportunities to try and say something. And he, he did speak English. He's you know, a smart man and things like that. And uh, the best thing that I got out is I slipped him a Jesus film in Thai before we left. I was working for the Jesus Film Project. We were out there. I said, King, I have a gift for you. And she gave it to him. And I kind of was there. And she handed it to him. And there's a special way you had to do it and all that stuff. And so we gave it to him. And, so, um, and then he got saved that night. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. But uh, that would have been great, okay? I don't know what the Lord might have done, okay? Uh, but, but man, what, what an opportunity uh, that Paul has here, okay? Paul and Sister are being invited to go and meet with these guys who will then disperse and go and teach their thoughts and ideologies to the world. And so he's going to enter into the Areopagus again. That's the context of what he does here. So in verse 22, he says this, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, Areopagus, yeah, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, with therefore you worship as unknown. This I proclaim to you. Um, I've never had a chance to visit Athens. Um, I have many friends who have. My parents have been there. Some pictures, right? But you can kind of picture, if you can, if you can think about the city now, and you, and you, right, you, ha- you have all these amazing buildings. You have the Parthenon, right? It's like up on the hill. And you just picture these magnificent temples and buildings as he walks through the city. And as he's walking, he sees this temple. And, and on the front of the temple, I'm guessing on some sign or whatever was inscribed, the temple to the unknown God. 
Now, this is historically factual. You can go and research about this temple of the unknown God. And, and they, they had this. Like the, the, if you don't know, if you're not familiar with the kind of the Roman uh, kind of deity system, they, they, were, they believed in multiple, multiple, multiple gods. Okay, Polytheistic. And so all these gods, and yet in the midst of all these gods that they created, they, they just had some stuff that they couldn't figure out. Like, they, they couldn't create enough gods for some of the things that they had seen. Like, some of the stuff that had happened in their history and around, they're like, you know what, that couldn't have been any of the ones we know, so let's just do this one to the unknown god. And they would go and they'd worship there for the things they could not explain. So here comes Paul, standing in front of the great thinkers of the day, and says, hey, I was walking through and I saw this temple, and let me tell you, you know that temple of the unknown god? You know the things that you can't seem to figure out? You know, the things that confuse you, that confront you, the things you cannot explain. Let me tell you who that God is. It's, it's my God. And he begins to preach to, to the great thinkers of the day about this man named Jesus and calls out idols in the midst of the presentation of this gospel. So in verse 24, we see the start of that. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord and heaven of earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he's going to juxtapose the God of the gods of the Roman Empire with, with Yahweh, with, with Jesus, and say, like, listen, here's, here's where your guys fail and our guy succeeds. This is, this is where our God is, is triumphant and your God is found lacking. And the first one, I think, is he says, listen, your gods, they live in temples. We live in his. He's like, you, you, these are the kind of the places of where they're commemorated. He's like, no, 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 we actually live in God's temple. He made everything you see. We live in the temple of God. And then even a step further now, Christ lives in us. He didn't say that, but I'm just going to throw that in for us now. Okay. Your gods live in this little building. Our God made the material that made that building. Your, your gods are nothing. They fall short. They do not measure up. And I think in every way, as you could look upon those big buildings, we've got those in our culture today too, and they're usually in the form of sports stadiums and, and uh, your house. And the other things that we just idolize as these amazing temples of our ingenuity and creativity and wealth and status and all sorts of other things that just take us away from God instead of draw us towards him. And he calls that out. And the next one he calls out, I think he says, you know, unlike your gods that use you, our God gives you everything. So your gods, and if you're familiar at all with kind of, again, the Roman polytheistic system, I mean, the gods existed and you had to serve and appease them for anything, right? So if you wanted something, you better, if you wanted this specific thing, go to that god, that type of idea, right? And then he would be the one to take care of it, okay? And, and, and they're like, listen, all these, it's not about what you bring to the table. No, rather, it is about what God gives you and God gives you everything, life, breath, and sustains this entire world. Confronting these idols of self-justification that we all seem to have. That we prove ourselves to the deity. That we prove ourselves to God. That we bring enough to the table. And that's just not true. No, God gives us everything, including the justification necessary through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That says, no, come to me forgiven without blemish and perfect because of what he has done, what God has done, not what we have done. 
Okay? Confronting these idols, the idols of self-justification, the idols of idols and status from the other one, and then these last few in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of the dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. He's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art in the imagination of man. A few more comparisons and contrasts between the gods of the Romans and the God of the Bible. The third one, I think, confronts the idol of purpose. It says, my God created everything and determines all things, but your gods are limited. See, my, my God, in every nation, every person, I have instructed and authored and moved and directed. Everything that has happened has been by my hand. Your, your, your little gods handle maybe a little bit peace of this world, even though they don't. He's like, no, no, my God orchestrates this entire world. Like everything that you know, you know because of him. Everything you see, you see because of him. Everything you think, you think because of him. And on and on and on. He sustains the entire world. Confronting this, this idol, I think, honestly, of purpose, right? That, that No, 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 it, it's not him that does everything. It's like, no, I, I did this and I achieved this. And, and look, look at what I've done and what we can again bring to the table. He says, no, 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 it's all about God and what he has done pushing against the idols of the day. Number four, your gods are distant and my God is close. Your gods live on top of mountains like Zeus, right? They, they live in these temples. They're distant from you. They have no true interaction unless you're at their beck and call. Whereas my God, not only since day one, has been there, created you, brought life into you, breathed life into you, but he also sent his only son to this world to live with you and to experience everything that you've experienced. That every aspect of your humanity, God knows because he lived it and because he created it. He is not some distant, far-off God, even though oftentimes in our culture today, he's painted that way. No, 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 our God, the God of the Bible, is intimate, relational, and engaged with every single thing and person in this world, whether they realize it or not. Confronting, I think, these idols of individualism, right? That, that no, 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 we're, we're, the, we're the center, and it's, it's based on my relationship and what I craft, the life around me, what I can prove. No, 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 it's about God and him. And what he's done. The last one I think he confronts is this idol of self and control. He says, your gods are formed by you. And he says, my God formed us. And I cannot tell you as we look across the landscape of our world and culture today, how often I think about the things that we've uplifted in our culture and how we have crafted these new gods that take away from the one idol that deserves all of our worship. We find new things. Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories, that constantly we're crafting new things to worship when the only one thing that deserves our worship has been there the entire time. We form and create the same to saying all of these temples, all these gods you've made, but the God of the universe, this unknown God that you speak of, he made you and he made all those things. Your God's pale and fail when tested against the God of the universe. And that is the God of Scripture. And he preaches this again to the, uh, the wisest of the day. Now, 
what does all this mean and how do they respond? How do we respond? We land in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So at some level, success, right? Some people come to know and believe and are saved. And, and, uh, and we know some of the stories of what some of these people go on to do. And it's extravagant. But as we think about the way they respond, what does it mean for us to respond this morning? I think they had three choices, and I think we have three choices as well, as does every single person in this world. In an accurate presentation of the gospel that confronts the idols of our world and tells you to lay it down for the sake of the other instead of being it about you. And those three are either you reject it and say, nah, not for me. Even if it's true, I don't want it, right? Or I just don't believe it at all. So you just reject it. That, that's, a, that's an option. So eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Reject it, okay? Be like the Epicurean. Or uh, you can accept it, right? You can say, yeah, that, that sounds right. That, that God sounds better than, than the idols that I'm chasing that continually to this day seem to fail me. I thought money was going to do it, and I arrived and had a ton of money, and it didn't work, right? I, I thought the perfect cookie-cutter home and family was going to do it, and uh, that didn't work either, and I'm still left wanting. Um, I, I thought this achievement of status, I'll finally have this, this name and this fame, and I can just tell everyone about who I am. I thought that was going to do it, and that, that's, that didn't work either. I thought enough sexual conquest would get me to the place where then I would feel valuable enough, but, but that didn't do it either. I thought some of this escapism where I could go to drugs or alcohol or these other things, other idols, I thought myself, I thought individualistically I could prove myself to myself. Like I could earn and achieve enough that I could look inwardly and, and forget all the stuff around me. I could at least look at my own heart and say, well, I'm good enough. And that didn't work either. Because every idol of this world will fall and will fail except for one. And so you can reject that or you can accept that. And, and here's, here's one of the most beautiful things, is that there's, there's a sermon, and it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection by this guy Thomas Chalmers. And, and here, I don't love everything Chalmers says, but I love this one sermon. Because one of the things he talks about in this sermon is that he talks about how the heart must have something to worship and cling to, which is biblical. And he says that it must desire something, it must cling to something. And he says what we often do as Christians in this world is we rend away, is the language he we rend away this idol, we force the idol out. And what it leaves is this gap in our heart and our soul that desires something new to worship. And so even if we can push away sex, we then desire status. If we can push away status even for just a moment, then we desire wealth. If we can push away, and you get the idea, your heart must always have something to worship and to cling to, and he would claim, and I would agree that the Bible points to the same idea, that the only thing that forces out a bad idol is the true worship of the only one that will and can never fail. So my, my desire for us, if it's this kind of accept idea as you're thinking, you know, accept, reject, where I want to be here, if it's accept, I don't want you to just think, you know what, let me put all my focus in. Well, this is the idol I struggle with. Let me gird, you know, pull up myself by my bootstraps and work super hard to rid myself of that idol. 
My desire is that you would fall more deeper in love with the only idol that would push out all the other idols once and forever. Because if you're just trying to push it away, something else is going to come in. And listen, friends, like Satan is crafty and he'll stick another thing right in front of your face. Until the pursuit and the desire for Jesus is, is the greatest desire, the other desires will seem pretty good. But they'll continue to fail. And the only thing that will rend forever away an idol in this world will be the only one true idol that will never fail us. And that is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. There's a third option, and that's, will you tell us more, right? So it's, I accept it, I'm fully in, let's go, let's, let's, let's repent, let's engage, let us fall more in love with Jesus. There's reject, no thank you, but then there's, there's these guys, hey, we'd love to hear some more about this. And I don't know what brought you here today. I don't know all of your spiritual backgrounds. I don't know. And honestly, every, any given week, there's a good handful of you here who just have nothing to do with Jesus and you like it that way. And that's the way you showed up. And if you're here and you're thinking, man, I'd love to hear a bit more about this God who you're making these audacious claims about. Let's do that. And not just here, show up here. That's great. But man, sit down, talk to someone, whoever brought you. I'm guessing that, you know, they know some stuff, right? And, and ask them some questions. Or... And most importantly, open this up and read this thing and see what it says. Get some people around you and open it up. I shared my story last week. I'm not going to share it again. It takes a while. But I got saved at a Bible study as a non-Christian that me and my non-Christian friends decided to start together. Move of God. Okay. Because there's life in the true story of the world in here. Okay. So accept it, reject it, or, or hear more. And I desire that at the least we would all desire to hear more. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and for your grace to us. There are so many, there's so many silly things, Lord, that, that I've chased after throughout my life. And, uh, even to this day. Lord, and I just desire to fall more in love with you. God, you tell us in the midst of that love that, God, that love is, is tied in with obedience. God, I pray that you would drive um, me towards that type of love. Got a love that that sees just how foolish and insignificant and unhelpful and unreliable and sad and depressing are the idols of this world and sees just how incredible, gloried, beautiful, strong, and powerful and every other positive uh, adjective I could think of that you are. And ultimate Lord, um, we know that nothing, nothing really good happens outside of the movement of your hand. And so we pray, God, uh, over us today that you would move in power and you'd shape us. And as we respond, God, that you would meet us in that response. And we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that, man, you love us. God, you love us so much and you desire to give us so much more than we even want. God, we love you in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to listen to a time response in just a moment, just for time's sake. I know you guys all wanted to see Anthony, but we're going to give him a break. Um, but I want to share this one last little bit. The story of this thing happened with Finley this week, and he's my little three-year-old, and 
we're getting to the point now where Verity's telling me I can't use him in as many sermons because he's getting old enough where now he knows and we don't get upset and stuff. And I get that. I want him to be a Christian. And so, uh, so I'm trying to get in as many as I can now. And so this, this last week, we bought a watermelon. Now, has anyone, y'all ever bought a watermelon? Show of hands. Okay. Good. Uh, that dude loves him some watermelon. Like, it is, it is why he lives at this point. Okay. And so when you cut up a watermelon, uh, there is a kind of, depending on the size, on average, probably like a, a four inch by three inch by three inch center of that that is beautiful, red, firm enough, right, but juicy enough. There just happens to be no seeds because there's a God, you know, and it's just gorgeous. And you cut it up and the knife goes through it perfectly and you're just like, these are the best bites, right? And then in concentric circles from that center, it just gets worse and worse, right? Until you get to the rind and you're like, this tastes terrible. You know what I mean? Like that, this is for the dogs, okay? Anyway, so we cut this thing up and there's this whole bowl and Finley comes over and he's saying, you know, he's watermelon daddy, watermelon daddy, watermelon daddy. I said, sure. And he comes up on the counter and he starts, I want this piece and this piece and he's pointing at all the pieces. He starts pointing at the pieces with some white on it, right? With the rind, okay? And, and I'm thinking to myself like, you know, he'd have no idea. <laughs> he doesn't know that's the worst watermelon. And then this way, I get all the good watermelon for me. And so I begin to honestly have this, like, this battle with my, with, like, the Holy Spirit. Be like, dude, give your kid the good watermelon. (laughs) I'm like, but he's not going to know, Lord. He's three, right? Long story short, I give him the good watermelon. Even though he has no idea the difference between either piece. But I know that there is better things for him than he knows himself. That I, I can step back and I see the bigger picture. Dude, listen, you, know, you don't even know, but this is the prime real estate of the watermelon, man. And so I'm going to give you every single bite I can that I can find in this whole bowl of the good watermelon. So I filled that sucker's bowl up with tons of good watermelon. And again, he goes off gleefully regardless of what I put in there. And I just, that story this week is I'm thinking through the idols. And gosh, guys, I struggle with so many of my own. Okay? And just thinking, these things, I, I, I desire these things. And I'm like, this is going to be the thing. This is the best thing, Lord. Just let me have this. And he's like, you have no idea, man. I'm so much better than that. I am, I am, Jesus is the true and greater watermelon. Center of the watermelon. Okay? Tweet it. Okay. And wherever you're at this morning, I don't know all your stories. I don't know what idols you guys battle and stuff like that. Jesus is just better. And he knows it because he knows you better than you know you. He knows your desires better than you know your desires. He knows your success better than you know your success. He knows your hopes better than you know your hopes, etc., etc. He's the God of the universe and he's bigger than anything in this world. Amen.